Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hello and welcome to the Over and Back podcast. I am Jason and with me as usual is Rich. Hello, Rich. Hello. So we are talking about perhaps the most amazing feat in pro basketball history. It is Wilt Chamberlain's 100-point game. It's 60th anniversary, March 2nd, 1962, 60 years since his accomplishment. And joining us, author Gary Pomerantz talked about on the show previously, written some great books, including in 2018, The Last Pass, Koozie, Russell, The Celtics, and What Matters in the End. But more importantly today, a great book in 2005, Wilt 1962, The Night of 100 Points and the Dawn of a New Era. And Gary's here to talk to us about some of the uh, really interesting facts about the one of the most amazing nights in pro basketball history. What do you think, Gary, tends to surprise newer fans the most when they learn about Wilt's 100-point game? Well, just the that it really happened, I think. You know, this, this game has been launched into sports mythology. I think some people think that Babe Ruth and Wilt Chamberlain are fictional characters, but they really did live once, and boy, did they entertain us. Um, you know, Wilt's 100-point game is a little bit like, uh, you know, folklore. It's a piece of Americana, like Andy Warhol's soup cans. Um, and when I was a kid growing up in Los Angeles, there was Wilt, you know, all muscled up, playing for the Lakers, wearing the yellow headband. And I kept hearing that this guy had scored 100 points in a game, and I would look at him. He was immobile. And I <laughs> thought, how did that guy score 100 points in a game. And what I learned when I got into this, of course, is that it wasn't that guy. It was a very different earlier uh, rendition of him. Uh, and, and Gary, you sort of mentioned something that I wanted to, to get at uh, is the mythology of this game. And, and I've heard from a bunch of different people, and, and I've kind of, and I think Jason and I have kind of pondered this as well. Do you think that if this game 
was either in a different era or if it, even in this era, if it aired on TV, if we had a lot of video footage, if there was news clip, if there was a little bit more that we saw of this game, do you think it would be more believable, less believable, or like where? Because it's very strange how it does have this thing where because there's so little media, there are people that legitimately are like, I don't know, did it actually happen? It's like, no, it happened. Like we promised it happened. But like, I get it. Why you'd be like, well, I mean, we haven't seen. Oh, we we have Will holding up the hundred. We have Wilt drinking milk, and we have Wilt shaking someone's hand on the court. And that's it. That's as far as we know, that's all the visual evidence we have. And then we obviously have some clippings and stuff like that. But do you think it would maybe hurt or help the mystique of this game if we had video to see? Oh, crap. Here's this guy going here scoring 100 points. Or do you think it maybe works a little bit better that it's a little mysterious? Well, listen, Rich, there were people who believed that Neil Armstrong really didn't set foot on the <laughs> Myself included. I'm kidding. I'm you know, yes, I think it adds to the mystique of the game that you can't see it. But, you know, there's something about the power of radio, the power of imagination. Mm-hmm. You know, FDR's fireside chats um, were almost more powerful than if he'd been televised because people sat in front of the radio and listened to the voice. And, and they imagined so much of the about the delivery, about the man. And so, too, with Will Chamberlain. I, I mean, I, I think... You know, he was um, altogether unprecedented. When he came into the league in 1959, um, you know, and people watched him run the floor like a, like a train, I almost imagine the reaction of the uh, Native Americans on the plains of the first sighting of the locomotive. You know, Wilt was that uh, shocking to people. He, he was uh, just a remarkable athlete. There's this sense that in Hershey, uh, you know, and this is part of the mythology of the game. When you can't see it on video, you just fill in the blanks, the open space to what you imagine must have happened. So people imagine he's a big guy, so he must have had 50 dunks playing against three foot tall uh, New York Knicks. Well, it's just not true. What does exist from the coverage of that game is the fourth quarter and only the fourth quarter, because if you had the whole game, that wouldn't be, you know, play into the mythology of WCAU radio uh, in Philadelphia, Bill Campbell's call. And um, what you can hear, and, I, and I've listened to this tape with a number of the players from the 100-point game when I was working on my book, Wilt, 1962, and it triggered a lot of memories, not only about the game, but about Wilt, about the time period, about Hershey. And, um, you know, Wilt is scoring on all different kinds of uh, plays. He's scoring in transition. Uh, he's hitting free throws. Boy, is he hitting free throws. Um, at a rate that was uh, remarkable for him, 28 for 32 that night. And uh, he's scoring on a fallaway bank shot, putbacks, and yes, some dipper dunks. So there was a lot to his performance. Yeah, you know, he has this almost, and we've talked about it already, I mean, it's almost like Paul Bunyan. You know, it's almost like, you know, there's so, there's so many tall tales. There's so much, um, you know, what's true, what's not true about Will, about his accomplishments. Um, and obviously what he did, what we know he did is amazing. But how well do you feel like he's understood both as a player and as a person? Well, when you talk about the tall tales, no one fused myth and reality more about Will Chamberlain than Wilt himself. I mean, the, the stories he told were fantastic, literally. They were, <laughs> they were unbelievable, literally. 
for instance, Cal Ramsey, uh, who played, who was a broadcaster for the Knicks for a lot of years. Cal played for the Knicks for a season in 1960, 61. And he said he was with Wilt once and Wilt was telling him he was, Cal, I was out driving in, across the country and I pulled out to stretch and I was attacked by a mountain lion. I killed the mountain lion, Wilt said, with my bare hands. <laughs> and Cal's looking at him like, come on, dip, really? And then Wilt draws back his shirt to expose his shoulder. And he's got these two long scratch marks there. And, and Cal's looking at him thinking, it could have been a mountain lion. <laughs> <laughs> my, my favorite Wilt story, and Wilt told this one to the team the year he scored 100 points in the 1961-62 season. He liked to tell stories about his, his season with the Globetrotters. And in this particular story, told in the locker room, the team gathered around him. Uh, Wilt said that uh, they went to Moscow, uh, the Globetrotters, and truly they did. And he said they played a number of games there. And then one night they were invited to dinner uh, at the Kremlin by members of the Politburo, as the story goes. And the team's listening, uh-huh, uh-huh, and rapt attention. And Wilt says, they started giving us toast with vodka, and we all had a drink, each shot of vodka. And he said, the Globetrotters and members of the Politburo, their, their heads went down onto their arms on the table, defeated by vodka, one by one. <laughs> Wilt pauses for dramatic effect and said, until there were only two of us left, me, and Khrushchev. <laughs> and, you know, that's Wilt. It's like he yeah. always is the manly hero in the stories he told. And in this case, he replaces the United States and will fight the Cold War himself. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. You, you had mentioned the 1962 Warriors uh, there a bit. So l l l I wanted to touch on them a little bit. Um, do you think, and, and you've obviously spoken to, to, to members of that team and people that were around that team. Did you get a sense from anybody that, or, or, or sort of like what were the dynamics of that team in a lot of ways? Because it's obviously the strategy of that team is give the Wilt, you know, give Wilt the ball as much as he needs and as much as he wants and let him just score. And he'll basically do everything for us and we'll see what happens. And we've, we saw, you know, in later years with Wilt where different coaches would take different methods with Wilt and, and some of those you know, a little bit more successful than others. But, you know, you know, largely, you know, the Lakers saying, hey, look become more of a defensive guy, become more of a rebounder guy, let everybody else kind of move around you. Let, you know, other coaches saying, hey, become more of a pass-friendly guy. 62 is really, obviously we have the 100-point game, but more than anything, it's just the year where Wilt is the most Wilt that Wilt would ever be. And did you get a sense from anybody that you spoke to that there was some uneasiness about that? Or was the team basically like, hey, look, give Wilt the ball because it's Wilt. Like, why would you even try to not have him have the ball every single time? Even though they weren't like as successful as a team as you would say, like, yeah, what were the dynamics surrounding that team? And did anybody really care that Wilt was scoring pretty much every time he touched the ball? Well, they finished 49 and 31, second place. Right. So 11 games behind Bill Russell and, and Red Auerbach in the Boston Celtics. Um, so uh, Frank McGuire was the new coach of the Philadelphia Warriors that year. He'd been a legend in the college game uh, at North Carolina and St. John's. And he was a dandy from Greenwich Village in New York. And he came in and he was schmoozing Wilt and before the season and, and Wilt said to him, he said, look, you know, uh, I can't help this team if I'm on the bench. And for me to come out of the game and go back in, it takes this body about three minutes to warm up. So it was understood from Wilt and also from the owner, Eddie Gottlieb, who was spending a, a pretty penny on Wilt, about $65,000, $75,000 that first season, that he wanted him on the court. 
the most amazing statistic from that season when Wilt averaged 50 points a game is not that. And when Wilt scored 100 points a game is not that. The most amazing statistic is that he averaged 48 and a half minutes a game in playing time. Now we have to stop and pause and think about this. I mean, we're, we're in an era now where players playing time is managed carefully. They'll skip games. They'll, you know, you want to get that number down to where it's supposed to be by, by design, you know, 34 minutes a game, 36 minutes a game, not with Wilt. There were three overtime games. Wilt was never taken out of the game that season, 80 game season by Frank Ramsey. He only missed eight minutes and 33 seconds of that game because he was thrown out by the referee, Norm Drucker, for calling uh, the mother of uh, referee Earl Strom some unkind names. <laughs> Apart from that, he would have played every minute of every game. Well, you don't mess with Earl Strom. You know, that's- uh, <laughs> Or his mother. <laughs> and the old yeah, adage, or his mother, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that 62 Warriors too. I mean, they weren't a bunch of scrubs and, and Wilt. I mean, they had, you know, Paul Arizon, you know, toward the end of his career, but he'd been one of the great players in the fifties, you know, Tom Gola, who was an important part of that championship team was a great college star, you know, Guy Rogers, who was one of the better, you know, guards in the game, not, you know, Jerry West, Ash Robertson, but, you know, in that next tier of great defensive guards, you know, Al Adels, who was a, you know, a, a good role, great role player. And of course, later, you know, famous coach and warrior for life and Thomas Sherry, you know, young kind of budding star, you know, real good rebounder. So, you know, they had some pretty strong contributors around. It wasn't just, you know, it wasn't absolutely a hundred percent. You would say, oh yeah, just give it to Will because no one else can do anything. A lot of guys could do stuff. And, you know, like you said, they were 11 games behind the Celtics. They, you know, come very close. They're two points, you know, two point loss in game seven in Boston away from going to the finals. And, and maybe, you know, thinking like, Hey, maybe this give the ball to Wilton, let him score, uh, you know, 50 points a game strategy is going to work. They came very close to, you know, uh, succeeding, which, you know, no, no team had been able to do, you know, before that since the Russell era and, you know, knocking them off the pedestal. All true. And, you know, one thing to remember here is that, you know, you mentioned, Paul Aras and Tom Gola, Guy Rogers, these are Philadelphia guys. Right. And so, you know, they're playing in their hometown. They've got their egos too. I remember Gola telling me once he was standing outside the locker room and just passing the, the, the ball against the wall and back, against the wall and back, it came to him. And somebody said, what are you doing? He said, I'm practicing our offense. I pass it to Will and I just stand there. <laughs> you know, these guys had egos. These were real players, real sure. men. You know, they had contracts uh, to negotiate for the next season and they needed their numbers. Uh, and this is one of the things that is little considered about the 100 point game that for a guy to score 100 in a game, he's got to one, have an ego because you're not going to score 100 without an ego. You need a, you, you not only have to want to do it, you have to on a deeper level need to do it. Um, and, and that's really important to think about. But number two, your teammates have to be willing accomplices. They have to go along with it. And, and Wilt's numbers were astronomical all season. He scored 43 times. He, he surpassed 50 points in a game, 43 times that season. And it was prophesied that if the planets aligned, that one, one night, this guy was going to score 100 points. Yeah, and he obviously, you, know, and you mentioned that for, for people that don't know, his shot attempts by quarter. He started the first quarter, he had 14 shot attempts, then 12, then 16. And then in the fourth one, everybody kind of realized, wait a minute, we got something going here. Uh, he, he did get that up to 21 uh, shots in that fourth quarter. And I guess, you know, where in your mind does this rank in terms of 
unbreakable sports records. Like this feels, I mean, yeah, obviously we had the Kobe 81. We've had some guys get eh, close and by close, I mean like 30 points away, you know, some 70 point (laughs) games or whatever. I mean, this seems like for the multitude of reasons, like you said, you need to have a guy with a a big ego. You need to have a, you know, a team that's willing accomplices. You need to have a lot of things to happen. I mean, this feels like this is right up there with the, one of the most unbreakable sports records of all time. It just, it just feels like it would, so many things would have to go in a certain way for this to happen. Do, do you agree? Or, or where, where do you think this ranks among unbreakable sports records? Way up there. I think the way the NBA is trending now, you got to think that the 48 and a half minutes. Per game <laughs> Certainly. Is, yeah. That seems yeah, like a tough one is, for sure. It's going to be the league leader is going to be at about 15 minutes a game. <laughs> Um, you know, DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak in baseball strikes me as um, a big Everest to climb as well. You know, if the question is always, can 100 points in a game happen again in the NBA? Right. And my response is, it happened once. You know, so sure, it could happen again. What would it take? Well, I think it's going to take a big man who can shoot threes and free throws. You know, say a Kevin Durant model player. Um, you know, then, you know, you just get into a shooter's night. Kobe had a shooter's night against Toronto in 2006 and he, you know, finished with 81 points. Um, so there's, there's that, but the teammates have to go along with it. And, you know, not, not all teammates want to go along with it. Mm -hmm. You know, Wilt was not loved by his teammates. We have to remember this, you know, a lot of people think about the hundred point game as a carnival show. And I suppose in a sense it was, I mean, Dave Zinkoff, the PA announcer was raffling off uh, cigars and salamis at halftime. Okay. So there's, you do that in a carnival, I guess, but this was a game with real meaning. This was a game of symbolic meaning. And by that, I mean, you know, Wilt's hundred point game symbolically shattered the racial quotas that existed uh, in, in the league that limited the opportunities for black players to initially one or two per team, then three or four. And from this point forward, uh, the NBA would be a white man's enclave no more. You see, nothing happens in a vacuum then or now. And you think about 1962, I mean, to, to put it on a historical timeline, 10 days before this game, John Glenn blasted into orbit. You know, on the night of this game, Kennedy was literally um, speaking in the Oval Office um, you know, scaring away Khrushchev or trying to with language about nuclear arms. Um, so, you know, you have the Dr. King's civil rights movement in full flight. So race is a part of this. This, this. this is an important statement because what was happening now was a breakthrough where you had uh, Black players with luminous athleticism, Russell, Wilt, Elgin Baylor, Oscar Robertson, these were dynamic players. They were taking the game, you know, a horizontal game vertical above the rim and making it theirs. And there was going to be no turning back. This game was, was taken off with a pasture metabolism. Yeah. And, and that's obviously a, an excellent point and just kind of really how he and that generation of players really shaped the culture of the league and paved the way for it to grow and expand and really become a major league sport, you know, in the sixties and the seventies, you know, obviously it was still way behind baseball and football, you know, kind of took magic and bird to get it where, you know, people saw it on that level playing field, but they, you know, that generation really 
push to to change the culture of the league, to change the focus uh, and, and understanding of maybe what made the great players great, to push the boundaries of scoring. I mean, you know, those guys started to score at a rate that no one else did. And some of that obviously was the, was the pace. I mean, this is to a degree, you know, the equivalent of the NBA's juice ball era with just the amount of scoring that was, um, you know, happening with the number of 50 point games uh, that year. But um, it, it really speaks to just um, how much, you know, he really just completely, uh, you know, he and that other generation, gender, you know, where would you say, that Wilt's influences felt the most in today's game? You know, it's an interesting question. Um, I I think in fitness, for sure. You know, if you go and look at the team photo of the 1961-62 Philadelphia Warriors, Wilt looks like Hercules. And and I'm not sure he, with his training he did then, which, you know, his training amounted to, carrying free weights with him on road trips. I mean, literally in his bag, he had, he had hand weights. Um, he cared about his body and, and he was fit. I mean, at, at the time of the 100 point game, he was seven foot one, 260 pounds, a massive back, you know, uh, sloping down to a 31 inch dancer's waist. I mean, he was cut. And uh, so I think there's fitness. Um, I, I would like to think that you know, Will was a luminous figure for his time. And there's a certain style that the NBA has. And, and Will certainly had that then. I mean, in 1961, he had his own racehorse named Spooky Cadet. It never won. Um, he had a custom-made Bentley. He co-owned a Harlem nightclub called Big Wilt, Smalls, Paradise, Red Fox, Edda James, Cannonball Adderley performed there. And, and Will, in his fine suit, was the greeter there moved through the room like he owned all of New York. Um, he was somebody and he knew it. He loved being Wilt. And he understood that this game had entertainment value. And I think some of the players today, you know, understand the entertainment uh, value of their game. Steph Curry with his little shimmy, you know, after he hits the threes. Everybody's watching Steph. He knows that. Um, so um, let me say this too quickly about Steph Curry. You know, I, I was at a Warriors game a few years ago and saw Clay Thompson go off for 60 points and he didn't even play the fourth quarter. It was a catch and shoot masterpiece. I mean, you know, catch, shoot, bang, 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 three after three after three, and he gets 60. And what's, when I went home from the game that night, what struck me about it was not Clay's performance, but Steph Curry's performance. Steph was on the bench. It was a blowout over Memphis, I think. And, and Steph is waving the towel on the bench. He's just high-fiving people every time Clay scores. He was genuinely happy for his teammate. And, and I'm not sure Wilt would have been waving his towel if a teammate had been going for 60. Uh, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't, and neither would Michael Jordan. Um, uh, Steph is an unusual stu- superstar in that regard. 
Uh, you know, one one of the parts about the the game, the hundred point game that that I know a lot of people have have taken umbrage with is, and and you kind of mentioned this as well that there was willing participants in this. The team had to be willing participants. Uh, on the flip side, you had the Knicks who then started to stall a little bit, and not they realize, oh crap, we don't want to be on this wrong end of history, so we're going to stall a little bit. We're going to take the possessions a little bit, and then you had you know the, the Knicks following other players to try to get them to score instead of Chamberlain, and then the you know the Warriors doing their things. Did you do you think that maybe and and this might speak to a little bit of the question we asked a little bit earlier of like to try to get to 100 points again you might have to have some of this stuff happen again and with this sort of stuff you know would it fly in today's game or would people you know say okay this is becoming a sideshow this is becoming kind of ridiculous did you know when you talk to people about this game did anybody really say that okay it became just a complete farce at a certain point or was this still this like was there an or about this game that didn't turn it into a complete spectacle or a complete sideshow did anybody say the game was a complete Farce. Well, essentially every member of the New York Knicks, yeah, right? Donovan, <laughs> Daryl Imhoff, especially. I'm sure that it was a complete farce. <laughs> Here's what happens: with about seven and a half minutes to play, Wilt scores, and Harvey Pollack, the legendary Philadelphia statistician, beloved figure in Philadelphia and in the NBA, he passes over a sheet of paper with a note to Dave Zinkoff, the PA announcer, saying that Wilt had broken the NBA scoring record, his own record, which was 78 points set in a triple overtime game earlier that season. And so there's Zinkoff, and you can hear it on the, on the WCAU radio call. You know, ladies and gentlemen, Wilt Chamberlain has just broken his own scoring record. He has 79 points. And at that moment, suddenly everyone in Hershey Arena, including the players, has context. This is not a time when you look up at the big board right above your head right. and see that number 13 has 79 points and has X number of fouls. They didn't have big boards back then. You know, they just had a little metallic board that was really for hockey, the Hershey Bears hockey team up there. So they were lucky if they had the score right, let alone, you know, the number of points players had. So now everything intensifies. For the Warriors, the curiosity. Can the big fella actually do this? And for the Knicks, just this intense feeling of dread that if this guy goes for 100, people are going to be talking about it on podcasts 60 years later. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have a, a little bit of an offbeat question. So I, I don't think that there's any question that this is the uh, most uh, famous uh, sporting event, or probably the most famous event to have ever occurred in Hershey, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, what would you say is number two? Ooh. That's a hard one. <laughs> I think Jason and I have, have an answer. Something, yeah. <laughs> it would have to be something before the television age. I mean, you know, I mentioned the you know, Babe Ruth's call shot in the 32 World Series. Sure. The people who were there saw it. Yeah. But it wasn't televised, and and um, so maybe that I'd have to give that some thought. Okay, that hard one. But you know, if it, it happened today, I mean, people in the arena would be tweeting and tweeting and tweeting. Sure, and, and we'd see it on Instagram. Social media would would become a conflagration of of Wilt, you know, hashtag Dipper, hashtag Wilt, and um, ESPN sound trucks would be circling the building. It would just take off anything uh any other questions for gary rich uh yeah so there, there's a couple that i i had um one and and you could probably speak to this pretty well 
Uh, as far as Wilt's free throws in this game, and that, that to me is one of the more remarkable things about this game and probably what helped set him up for this is that he shoots, you know, 87.5% from, from the free throw line in this game. And he obviously had quite a few games at 100%, but those games where he's taking six free throws or he's taking five free throws, he's making five out of five. This one, I mean, it it, it is an unbelievable free throw game for Wilt, and that was always more than anything, his Achilles heel. Every player in NBA history has always had something. There's never been the quote-unquote perfect player. Every single guy has had some sort of flaw. For Wilt, that was largely his free throws. He just, for whatever reason, for one reason or another, Shaq was kind of the same way as well. The, the free throws just always kind of eluded him. But in this game, he just hit it well. Did anybody kind of speak to, was that something that just kind of happened? Or was that something that people said, oh, well, we really knew that he was going to be on this game? Or or was it just completely blind luck that on this particular night, he just hit most of his free throws and it wasn't a problem like it had been for, for a lot of games in his in his career? In the games leading up to Hershey, Wilt had scored over 60 points three straight times. Mm-hmm. And five days before Hershey, he had played against the Knicks and scored 28 points in the, in the fourth quarter alone. Um, so uh, free throw shooting... <laughs> You know, Will later in his career said he was going to fight Muhammad Ali. And uh, his father said to him, he said, Wilt, wouldn't you be better practicing your free throws? <laughs> and I, I think he would have been better practicing his free throw. I, in working on this book, I spent a lot of time in Hershey. And I loved my time in Milton Hershey's utopian company town. It was um, a fascinating um, place to to study and just walk the streets uh you know that that this game was played in Hershey is is sort of unbelievable but um the circus used to come to the Hershey arena several times a year and one of the kids then kids and now a 70 year old plus uh Hershey resident told me that he and his buddies used to um take the springboards that the clowns used in the circus and they would they had pushed the baskets to the sides of Hershey Arena inside um, so the circus could do its thing and so these kids would take the springboards and put them in front of the baskets and they would take running jumps and hit the springboard and go up basketball in hand they brought a basketball and dunk in the basket well it's a long way down for them when you're 14 years old so they held onto the rims and the rims were wobbling a little bit wobbling and then they let themselves down and drop cat like to the floor those rims were very forgiving <laughs> yeah, <laughs> i'm sure you hear a lot about every role um going in um and uh uh you know will shot his free throws underhanded that night uh, so did paul arizon and mm-hmm. guy rogers that season uh, and he looked ridiculous doing it. I mean, he's seven one. He would bend down low. His knees would flare out. He looked like a grown up trying to sit in a kindergartner's chair. Uh, but twenty eight of thirty two go in, and and yeah. close. That's the real miracle of Hershey. After the game, Al Adels, his teammate, told me Wilt was sitting in the in the locker room, um, looking at the scorebook and shaking his head. And Adels said, "What's the matter, big fella?" And Wilt said, I can't believe I took 63 shots. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Adel said, but you made 36 of them. And, you know, I think this is in part why Wilt did not embrace this game for many years after it happened, because he thought it fed the notion that he was an individualist, mm-hmm. only interested in padding his own scoring. Um, 
we all know the story about Ted Williams, the baseball star with the Boston Red Sox, saying it was his hope that when people saw him walking down the street, they would point at him and say, there goes the greatest hitter who ever lived. Well, I think Wilt came to realize in his later years that when he walked down the street, people pointed at him and said, there goes the guy who scored 100 points in a game. And he began to embrace it more. It was almost like you know, a father estranged from his son after many years coming back and, and, um, and hugging him. And, and Will embraced the game and, and, and it took it in. He, you know, the many of the stories he told were untrue. <laughs> they just weren't true. I mean, he talked about, you know, the New York Frank McGuire trying to pump him up uh, before the game by showing him what the New York newspapers had written about him, that they were going to run him ragged. I mean, as I say, he just scored 28 points against them in the fourth quarter. <laughs> right. And I looked at it and there was no such stories. Um, I think sometimes it was hard for Will to say he didn't remember. <laughs> he, he came up with something that made yeah. it seem, you know. Well, 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 in the immediate aftermath, we've heard a few stories of, of, of how kind of Wilt reacted in the immediate aftermath of the game and, and, and sort of his trip home. And, and ha- what, have, what, are, what is your exact recollection of that? Because I've seen a few different ideas here of, you know, he got in a car and drove home or he was there with the Knicks. Like, what, what did you find out was the way that he kind of, quote unquote, celebrated the, this, you know, 100-point game? Like, and, and you sort of alluded to it there, too. There was not that much celebration in terms of, uh, you know, holding up the 100, drinking the milk, and then that was kind of it. But, you know, what, what sort of happened in the immediate aftermath of this 100-point game? Like, what was the reaction between Wilt and what was the reaction of, of you know, everybody around him? Well, you know, Will has often said he went back on the team bus. He didn't go back on the team bus. He had his attorney, Ike Richmond's car, and he drove from New York to um, Hershey. You must remember, Will lived in New York, right? And, um, and that was not something that went over well with some of the veterans on the team. They, only, they didn't really know him. I mean, they only saw him uh, in games and in, during practices. I had a long talk with Willie Knowles uh, of the Knicks about the aftermath of the game. And, and I too saw other stories about multiple members of the Knicks going back with Will mm-hmm. after the game. Uh, Willie Knowles was insistent. It was just the two of them and that he asked Wilt a lot of questions as Wilt was driving at ridiculously high speed to get back home <laughs> to uh, his nightclub in Harlem, but he was gonna drop Knowles off at his home in New Jersey first. And Knowles told me he asked Wilt a lot of financial questions. He, he just thought Wilt was a great businessman and he wanted to know about tax shelters and, and so forth. Um, and he dropped Knowles off and, um, you know, they, before Wilt left, he turned off the engine and they just sat there talking. And Knowles said he remembered Wilt saying that this was gonna be the night people would remember for him, you know, caring only about himself and, you know, and scoring a hundred points. Um, and, and, you know, what to me is significant here is on the one hand, think about it. You, you drop a hundred points on a guy and then you drive him home. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's outrageous. Yeah. I don't think the same scenario is going to happen. We mentioned if that ever happens again, I do not think that, uh, two current NBA players are going to drive home together and talk about tax shelters after, you know, the next hundred point game. They might I imagine. talk about tax shelters, but they're not going to yeah, drive home. Right. There might be a little bit more pomp and circumstance. Right. Uh, yeah. but, uh, no, and, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Let me just finish that. And I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Um, I think what, what really is important here 
is that um, it really wasn't so unusual for Will to, to do this um, because black players in the NBA at that time had closer, more meaningful relationships with black players on other teams than they did with their own white teammates. And uh, um, Walls later would go to, to the San Francisco Warriors. The Warriors left Philadelphia after that season, moved to San Francisco, and he and Wilt were teammates. Yeah, and, and that obviously, as you say, you know, we're still at a point where there's, you know, unofficial quotas. You know, most NBA teams don't have more than three black players at this point. You know, and that's that's starting to change as we get into the mid '60s. But, but you're right. I mean, especially in the early days, it was very much, you know, they there were those friendships, those good relationships were, that was the way that it, you kind of had to be given, or, you know, that black players had to, you know, rely on each other from other teams because of just the, the community that, that they, they built together and to be able to, um, you know, do well in a mostly white league. And obviously in a, you know, world that was hostile to them, especially many, many NBA cities. So um, yeah, that, that's, a, those are really remarkable um, stories and really remarkable relationships that were forged um, during those days. And it's, you know, really, you know, uh, Will was obviously, uh, you know, incredible player, but, um, and he's not necessarily known, you know, that much for his activism, but just by, you know, being who he was succeeding where he succeeded, you know, really paved the way for, you know, the next generation of, you know, all players, but particularly black players, um, to be able to have more room in the, in the game to be themselves to you know, both as players and as people. Yeah, I, I think all of that's right. All of that's right. And, and Bill Russell was a civil rights activist. Bill Russell, you know, led civil rights marches in Boston to Boston Common. Wilt would later call himself the world's tallest Republican. Um, but, and he, and he was a, a delegate at the 1968 convention for Nixon. Um, you know, but, but Wilt was not going to allow racism to in any way diminish him. He imposed his own impressive will. He earned more money than any other NBA player. And by, I think, averaging 50 points a night, he proved his physical superiority night after night and made a mockery of the league and its racial quotas and any silly notion that his white opponents were the, uh, the best players in the world, Wilt fought his own freedom struggle by being flagrantly and unapologetically um, the dipper. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're, we're on this podcast, we always try to, we've done multiple episodes about Wilt Chamberlain because I think Jason and I are both kind of fascinated by Wilt in, in a lot of ways. And I do, I do. I'm, I'm glad that your book exists, and I hope more people do take the chance because the anniversary is coming up to go and read that book and really learn about Will Chamberlain, study Will Chamberlain, learn about the man, the player, and all that sort of stuff because it's so easy, and you see it so often now where a clip of Will Chamberlain gets shared and people go, oh, he's just doing it against four-foot white guys or whatever, uh, you know, and it's like, no, I mean, go and look at I mean, this guy is such a great player, and I don't, I truly don't think we appreciate him enough in a weird way, and 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 books like yours and and podcasts like ours, we try to do what we can to make sure that people appreciate that. Yes, he had physical gifts that that not many other people had, but he also was a damn good player. There were other guys that were his height. There were other guys that had his ability, you know, his his physical attributes as well that were not Will Chamberlain. There's a reason why we still bring up Will Chamberlain. There's a reason why still to this day, and we we you know, Jason and I we kind of coined it that there's always a Wilt stat every single time some of the NBA 
does some ridiculous thing. They go, this guy's the first one since Will Chamberlain in 1963 or 1963 to do, to do this, this, or this. I mean, on a yearly basis, there's probably seven or eight of these where it's like, yeah, this is the first guy to do this since Will Chamberlain. We call it a Wiltstead. We say there's always yeah. a Wiltstead. It's just, it, it there's always a Wiltstead about this stuff. So I hope that people do take this anniversary to kind of appreciate what he did and, and, and take a chance to read your book and take a chance to, to do whatever they can to really appreciate what this guy did and how important he was to the NBA and not just a guy who had physical gifts and could just grab the ball and then dunk it and then walk down the court and whatever against, you know, people act like he's playing against literal children. We're saying like, no, that's not the case at all. There are really, really good basketball players against him. Wilt's just that good. And there's a reason why he's in a pantheon of all time, great basketball players. So, so I appreciate you doing the work that you did and, and, and everybody who does do the work to try to give some appreciation of what Will Chamberlain did accomplish and not just kind of, you know, maybe the Knicks players would agree, would say it's a farce, but I think most of us would say it was not a farce. It was this once in a lifetime accomplishment, and he was a once in a lifetime player as well. Well, it was Will that night bending a team and in, in, in really an entire sport to his will. I'll say it again. I mean, I think if you judge athleticism purely as on a criteria of size, speed, strength, and agility, then the young Will Chamberlain. Um, a scoring sensation and a decathlete might have been the best pure athlete of the 20th century. And if not, he deserves at least to be in that conversation. And I, and I really came to, when I was working on Will 1962, I, I really came to believe that. And um, the stories were, <laughs> they were the stuff of legend. Well, one quick thing, uh, Jason, before we get out of here, uh, the sure. ball, I forgot to mention about this. There has been many stories about this game ball here because nowadays Game balls, every single time the World Series is over, the guy grabs a ball, puts it in his pocket. Anytime there's a big thing, like, you know, there's people are fighting for a baseball or people are fighting for a basketball, people are fighting for some sort of memorabilia. Uh, the story, Gary, is that uh, a kid just ran out of the court, <laughs> took the ball, and then it kind of ran out, eluded security guards, and that was it for that. And then eventually it would get into auction, and then at that point the story gets a little muddy of who had it, what the bids were, what that sort of stuff. Did you ever find out? what happened to that ball who owns the ball these days or sort of the mythology around the ball because that is one of the most famous one of the more fun stories about this 100 point game is that just some random 14 year old kid just like ran on the court and took it and then nobody knew where it went for for decades afterwards okay so as i tell this story remember that when the they, the warriors went back to philadelphia that night the ball boy dave millman who became the um the equipment manager of the 76ers um said that they, he had brought 12 balls to Hershey. When they came home, there were only six in the bag. So six balls were lost in Hershey, which would have infuriated the team owner, Eddie Gottlieb, the mogul. <laughs> yeah. That was money that was lost. Six balls, money. And uh, what I can tell you is uh, a 14-year-old boy, Kerry Ryman, now 74, did run onto the court with all those Hershey kids and did grab a ball on the court. And there are a number of people I spoke with uh, in Hershey who knew Kerry then. Um, he was a pretty good basketball player himself as a 14-year-old, and he's zigzagging in and out of the crowd. He's being chased by two um, Hershey constables, one of whom worked as a delivery guy for Sears and Roebuck, which is not good training for chasing a 14-year-old determined to get out of the uh, building with the ball. He got out of the building, and uh, uh, he had snuck in to the game that night with friends. And he ran through the amusement park, past the Ferris wheel to his home, a duplex at 50 West Chocolate Avenue. You can't make this stuff up. 
said, Mom, Will Chamberlain scored 100 points at the arena. I got the ball. His mother looked at him and said, give the ball back. Well, he did not give the ball. <laughs> Smart. His father called the next morning and talked to the dad. Um, he passed away very recently, Will Ryman. And he said uh, he called over to the Hershey Arena and they checked with the uh, Warriors and Wilt in Philadelphia wasn't interested in it. And so Kerry Ryman did what any 14-year-old kid would have done then. He played with that ball over and over and over. And when Wilt died 37 years later, one of Ryman's friends said, you got to take that ball out of the bag in your closet and sell it because now's the time. And they sold it and they got $551,000 in auction at Leland's Auction House in New York. $551,000, maybe proof that crime pays. Um, But what happens is Harvey Pollack, the statistician then and and still at the time of this controversy uh, said, that's not the ball. We took the ball out of play. We had all the teammates of Wilt sign it. And then Dave Zinkoff used liquid whiteout on one of the panels and said, this is the ball Wilt used to score hundred points in a game. He put the, they put that in the window of the Sheridan Hotel so passersby would see it, good promotion. Of course, they ended up moving months later to San Francisco. Uh, Wilt said, suggested that the ball he gave uh, to Al Adels. Um, so there's still a story that Adels has the real ball. Remember, the ball boy said six balls were missing. The ball boy said when he went in and he put the ball in Wilt's bag, which he would have signed by the team players after the game and came back out because there were still 46 seconds to play. When he came back to into the arena, he saw Guy Rogers in celebration, throwing up one ball, throwing up another ball, and the balls are disappearing. <laughs> like, wait, wait, don't do that. So there you go. Um, the legend of the of the hundred point ball lives on. Yes. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a great story. And, and yeah, I'm just, I, I want to just say, yeah, your, your book, uh, Wilt 1962, just a fantastic read, fantastic look at Will, fantastic look at, uh, you know, a moment in time, what was going on in 1962, some interesting stuff about Hershey, Pennsylvania, about the world at large, just a, you're wonderful. And you know, you've written also another book more recently about NBA history, The Last Pass, a Koozie, Russell, the Celtics, and what matters in the end. And, you know, really great um, look at Bob Koozie's legacy, Kuzi, you know, in his elder years, you know, his late 80s at the time, now he's 93, and kind of wrestling with his legacy as a player and as a person, his relationship with um, with Bill Russell. So, you know, you've done some wonderful um, writing that, uh, you know, I know fans of this show, if they haven't had a chance, should definitely dig into. Well, thank you for those kind words, Jason. Nice of you to say. Gary, I think uh, I think we're just about out of time. So anything else you want to say before we uh, we bid adieu? No, just that uh, history matters. History matters. It really tells us uh, how we got here. And whether it's basketball or the history of uh, our families or our nation. And um, the NBA was a little bit slow to catch on to its past. And I love the fact that that you guys are doing a podcast about the history of the game because it's, it's a rich, revealing history. So go get it. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thanks so much, Gary. We really appreciate it. All right. You take care. All right. Well, thanks so much for uh, 
joining us. And uh, thanks everyone for uh, you checking out the show. We appreciate uh, all the great uh, feedback that we get on uh, on our shows. You can uh, find us at uh, Facebook and Twitter at both our at over and back NBA. You can go to over and back NBA.com to find all of our previous episodes, including some interesting ones in the past we've done about Walt Chamberlain. If you really want to dig in uh, in addition to checking out Gary's work and uh, we actually uh, have some, a lot of really good Wilt episodes, and one of our favorite Wilt episodes, unfortunately, uh, did get lost to a copyright <laughs> violation or something at one point. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, we were more loose in the days. You know, when we first started the show, we were like, ah, do whatever. Who cares? No one's yeah. listening. Uh, then yeah. eventually people started listening, and then eventually we got on different podcast networks, and then eventually technology existed to say, hey, you guys can't use copyright music uh, in podcasts. So that show will be up very soon as well, the 100 Facts about Wilt Chamberlain's 100-point game, which was our 100th episode. That uh, is a mysterious right. missing episode if you go to the archives. Uh, but it go. will be re-uploaded there. But we have a lot of Wilt episodes uh, that you can look at. So just search Wilt uh, on uh, overbacknba.com and you'll find all the Wilt you could possibly, possibly want, including uh, this interview as well. So yeah, Wilt is one of our favorite topics, and uh, this is the day to definitely celebrate Wilt in, in all of his glory. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, great stuff. Yeah, apparently dancing in the street, you you have to uh, yeah pay for dancing in the street. <laughs> so okay, um, I'm, yeah. we were so loose. Uh, I discovered we had dancing in the street. We also had living on a prayer for some reason. I don't know why. Oh, had... uh, Bon Jovi was born that day. Oh, that's, that's right. why John that Bon Jovi. Right. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah. now I then I was doing that we, internal thing because I was like, yeah, what what was the song that did it? Like I I don't know if we ever got an official word of of who it was, but, uh, yeah. I would tend to think it's Bon Jovi. He seems much more lame. Um, so I'm going to blame John right. Bon Jovi for that. So. Yeah. We, we should have gotten fair use for that one. Yeah. It was talking about it. We talked about it. It's pair, you know, it's, it's, we it's information. Yeah. All right. Well, this is the longest spells that we've ever done, but, <laughs> but <laughs> good stuff. So, um, yeah. Uh, follow us on social media. I already mentioned that, uh, yeah. wherever you listen to uh, your podcasts, uh, we're there. If we're not there, tell us and we'll go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, leave us a rating and a review because uh, it feeds our ego and yep. we're, we're really shallow people. So if like you can, Wilt, uh, you... we have intense egos and you, our teammates, <laughs> need, to fit, <laughs> right. need to fill how our are ego, we, so. How are we going to get our 100 points on Spotify if you don't feed our egos? Exactly. exactly. Right. So there you go. Yes. So yes. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back again soon. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com slash podcast. That's grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.